I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Olam blog, a news website providing breaking coverage on the Israeli national security state, joins us to discuss the latest in regards to Israel and Palestine, including the recent Israeli raid in Jenin, as well as the disturbing story of an autistic man killed by an Israeli police official. We'll cap off the conversation with a discussion of Elizabeth Surkov, an Israeli-Russian national kidnapped by an Iraqi Shia militia. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Youths. And now on to the conversation with Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Ulam blog. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I always enjoy speaking with. Uh, this is his third or fourth appearance on the show, Richard Silverstein of the Tikkun Ulam blog, which provides breaking news on the Israeli national security state. How are you doing, Richard? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So, Richard, I know there's a lot to talk about. You've been covering uh, quite a few different stories. But uh, before we you know, started recording here, I said that I sort of wanted to start with uh, the latest events that happened a few weeks ago in uh, the Janine refugee camp. Uh, maybe you could fill my listeners in on that because I did not have a chance to cover it as it was happening. I was on uh, vacation, and I think it's important that we talk a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. Let me uh, fill in some context here. Um, Israel has been uh, night, had nightly incursions into Palestinian towns and villages, supposedly seeking out uh, 
terror suspects. I use terror in quotation marks. Um, and uh, the the invasions have been uh, very uh, damaging, and uh, they happen in the middle of the night. Um, they've damaged homes. They've damaged the you know the insides of homes, uh, tossing things around and uh, arresting suspects. And the Palestinian youth in those towns and villages often resist, and um, they have some weapons, so they use the weapons. And within uh, regularly, at least one or more Palestinians are killed by Israeli forces during those uh, incursions. So. That has happened often in Janin because Janin is the heart of uh, Palestinian resistance on the West Bank. That's where the uh, Lion's Den uh, Palestinian resistance group is based. It's one of the sort of spearheads of resistance in the West Bank these days. So um, Israel did one of these incursions, uh, invasions, you can call it, where they brought in a lot of armored personnel carriers and the resistance was prepared for them and had planted uh, IEDs, uh, explosive devices, in the road. And several armored personnel carriers were disabled. Some, I think, were destroyed. Um, and it was really an embarrassment to the IDF. So the next time they did this is the event that you're talking about. And they brought uh, they were intent on revenge, basically. So they brought not only armored personnel carriers, they had armed drones that were firing down uh, on buildings. They had bulldozers that actually just completely demolished streets so that they were impassable. They tore down buildings. Um, Twelve Palestinians were killed, including several who were completely unarmed, who were just in the street, and snipers killed them. Um, I don't know, you know, just for the sake, for the hell of it. Um, maybe for target practice, who knows? Um, and it was a horrible, horrible situation. There were, uh, I think there were something like 12,000 residents of Janine and uh, five, six, seven or 8,000 were refugees within their own town. And keep in mind that these are people who in 1948 became refugees because they were indigenous to uh, Palestine. Uh, Israel-Palestine. So now they become refugees the second time. Homes destroyed, um, and and it was devastating. And not only did they have uh, armed drones, but for the first time since the first Intifada in uh, 1987, they used helicopter gunships. So it was basically just a, a complete invasion by the Israelis and unprecedented in terms of what they've done before this. And um, of course, there have been Palestinian terror attacks since then, as one would expect. And um, I want to talk about an important issue here, more of a philosophical issue, and that is the question of armed resistance. Um, the, the media and Israelis and Israeli media are um, normally will talk about uh, Palestinian terror, and I'm using that in quotes, um, and, and they do not see the Palestinians as legitimate uh, resistance against occupation. And I think it's important to note here that a UN General uh, Assembly resolution from 1982 not only uh, you, you cut out there not, for a not second. only justified resistance. Oh, okay. You said a, a UN General Assembly in 1982 and then it cut off. Could you repeat that? Sure. The 1982 General Assembly resolution not only said that resistance 
against occupation was legitimate, but it said that armed resistance against occupation was legitimate. Now, this is a provision that isn't yet accepted under international uh, laws of war. However, um, I believe given the level of, I would even call it genocide, and we could talk about that uh, concept if you want to, um, I believe that this uh, rises to the level of genocide uh, these uh, horrible attacks, the outright murder, um, the attempts to destroy Palestinian villages, and uh, the settlers attacking uh, all of these Palestinian villages where they attempt to burn down everything in sight. This I would call genocide. And the resistance to genocide, or even the resistance to occupation, if you want to use a less, uh, a lower level uh, of uh, crimes, um, is, is legitimate because you cannot deny the Palestinians the right to resist when Israel is using the massive firepower that it is. These people, these Palestinians, are defending their homes and defending their towns and villages. And Israel would do no less if they were the ones who were being attacked. And it's hypocritical for the media not to recognize that these are not terror suspects. And even if they engage in attacks against settlers, um, and killer wound settlers. This too is armed resistance because the settlers are living on stolen land, land stolen from Palestinians. Not just the land, but the resources, the water resources, um, and the military occupation. And all of the attacks by settlers on Palestinians are done with the direct collaboration, explicit collaboration of the IDF. So Having two standards, two different standards is hypocritical and unacceptable. I was curious, what do you think of the general reaction to the latest events in Janine? Because I've noticed even people that have been, I've known people that are supportive of Israel or aren't anti-Zionist or just uh, they, they try to you know say, oh, both sides. Even those people uh, said to me when this happened that they found it you know to be really shocking and and disturbing the actions Israel took. Uh, maybe you could comment on uh, what you think of the general reaction to the latest events in Janine. Well, let's talk about the president's reaction uh, since because of his position. Um, he basically, through a uh, State Department spokesperson, uh, said that he understood Israel's uh, need to defend itself. He did not uh, criticize in any way, directly anyway, um, the Israeli incursion, the level of violence. He basically said uh, that we're seeking for both sides to tone down uh, the rhetoric and to uh, quiet the military uh, attacks on both sides. And uh, he did not uh, engage in any kind of legitimate or uh, reasoned or proportional way with uh, what happened. And that really sets a tone for the rest of the country, uh, for Congress and, and people of, of that ilk. So um, f at the highest level, at the, uh, you know, at the legislative or executive level, we're not getting a real response that's legitimate. Um, we did get some response from some members of Congress, the squad. Um, they denounced this, uh, Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush, among others. Um, so, uh, but those are, you know, the equivalent of a still small voice. Uh, to use a phrase from the Jewish liturgy, um, it's a still a small voice in the wilderness. Um, I think, though, I think that in the mainstream of American public opinion, um, it's it's changing. It's changing very quickly. 
Um, there was a Gallup poll a few months ago that said that Democrats that, that, uh, who were respondents to the poll found that they were s more supportive of Palestine than Israel for the first time in the history of taking uh, doing the poll results. So the Democratic Party is still lagging. The leaders of the party and the donors to the party are still lagging behind the opinions of Democrats in uh, the mainstream. And I'm hoping that, 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 that the donors and that the leaders are going to catch up and uh, maybe it will require defeating them in, uh, in, in uh, primaries um, because they're out of touch or maybe they'll just by, of their own volition, you know, come to be more aggressive in criticism of Israel. Um, I think that uh, it's interesting that the Israel lobby had almost no response to all of this because it was so disturbing to so many people that there was nothing that they really could defend. Um, so you heard very little from APAC and, and uh, organizations like that. Um, so I'm hoping that this is going to be a wake up call for Americans. Um, it, it remains to be seen, you know, how much change it will cause, but I think that the ground is shifting underneath all of us when it comes to Israel, Palestine. One other thing about uh, the response to what has happened at the Janine refugee camp, uh, you know, the other refrain that I've often heard is the, from people that, that I think were legitimately disturbed by it uh, was, I've never seen anything like this before. This is ex this is extraordinary for Israel to be doing this. Um, what, what would you say to those people? Because I think uh, you have a very different view on this, uh, that, you know, that this has been building up for a long time and it seems to be getting worse and worse. Well, in some ways, Israel is is smart in the way that they've pursued this. They don't kill like Srebrenica. They don't kill 15,000 uh, Bosnian Serbs, uh, 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 Muslims at one uh, blow. Uh, they, they invade a village and they kill one person, two people. Um, every so often they go into Gaza. You know, recently the last two invasions of Gaza have killed like 100 people or 200 people. I'm not minimizing those casualties, of course. But from the Israeli point of view, it's graduated. Um, I, I call it a slow genocide um, because the deaths are uh, muted and, 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 and happen over a long period of time. But we, it's important to have a historical context here. Um, I've gone through all of the killings uh, over the past 120 years uh, using various sources. And Israel has killed 40,000 Palestinians uh, going back 120 years. Um, and 6,000 Israelis have died in that same period. So that's a, uh, a ratio of uh, six or seven to one, if I've got my math right. Um, and um, actually, it's more than that, six, seven. Yeah, seven to one. <clears throat> so we have to keep in mind that uh, this is not a small marginal kind of, uh, of genocide that's happening. It's accumulated over a long period of time, and the Israelis have always gotten the better of this situation. So for someone to say this is the first of its kind, or I never could imagine Israelis doing this, or I'm shocked, um, I have to keep in mind that this is an ongoing, not, not only ongoing Nakba, you know, the expulsion of the Palestinians, but it's an ongoing genocide. Um, and and we cannot lose sight of the fact that this doesn't happen overnight. This is just not the first of its worst kind of thing. 
I mean, we've had the first Intifada when thousands of Palestinians were killed. We had the second Intifada. We had uh, Operation Protective Edge in which 2,300 Palestinians were killed. That's 2014. So this goes back a long, long way. And then just to wrap up on on this specific issue, I know you said that maybe we could talk about this use of the word genocide and why you use that term. Uh, do you want to delve into that a little bit? Because I know there's there's going to be people that are you know shocked or, or or disagreeable about using that term in this context. So before I get into genocide specifically, I want to talk about the word apartheid. For decades, only Israelis were willing to use the term apartheid. Well, not only Israelis, but but it was not an accepted term uh, to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and even to talk about the treatment of Palestinians living in Israel who are citizens. Um, and some Israelis started doing it 20, 25 years ago. And, um, but it was, it was a shocking term for, for people to think about Israel in that context. And Jimmy Carter, when he wrote his book, got a lot of uh, attack and criticism because I think he used the word. Um, and, and it became acceptable. And now three different international human rights, well, two, one Israeli and two uh, international human rights organizations have written extensive reports documenting Israeli apartheid. And the word apartheid is in the name of the, each of these reports. And they not only that, but they say apartheid from the river to the sea. And that means apartheid not only in the West Bank, which is a more acceptable terms in the minds of many people. But we're talking about apartheid within Israel itself and the treatment of Israeli-Palestinian citizens. So that has become a normalized term, which real, is good. Real quick, if I could, not to interrupt you, I was going to say, I, I even saw um, a few months ago in the, the Jewish Forward, uh, you know, there was an article, I was wrong about Israel, I apologize, then President Carter gave me a lesson in grace. That was by uh, Steve Berman. He was uh, apparently saying, you know, Carter was right about this. Uh, we, we, you know, so it's it's even sort of permeating the sort of um, uh, commentary and their sort of discourse over these things. But go go on. And the forward is known as a liberal Zionist newspaper. So um, I think the fact that they're publishing um, Mia Culpa's like this and people reconsidering uh, is an important uh, indication of where uh, public opinion and Jewish opinion is going. So we we just discussed apartheid. And now the same thing is true of genocide. It's a term that shocks many people in the context of Israel-Palestine. Um, they're used to thinking of genocide as the Holocaust. But we have to remember that genocide as a term when it was first developed by Raphael Lemkin in around 1946, it covered a lot of territory, not just the outright mass murder of a people, which is what uh, we consider the Holocaust to be genocide in those terms, but it covers the destruction of a culture, the attacks on language, the attempts to eradicate uh, the identity of a people, and there are many other different terms that are covered under genocide. And Israel is doing almost all of those things. Mass violence, mass murder, uh, attempts to eradicate Palestinian culture, attempts to uh, ethnic cleansing, also another term uh, covered under genocide. There's mass ethnic cleansing, not just in 1948 under the Nakba, but it continues. 1967, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled to Jordan, and now there are refugee camps in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, et cetera. So 
Um, this term genocide is, to me, not controversial. And I've written a blog post about genocide and uh, how I see it uh, applicable in this situation. So I think we need to normalize the term genocide. Um, I think that it's important because it's a term that indicates um, a violation of fundamental laws, not just inter uh, not just war crimes and, and violations of the Geneva Accord, but really just fundamental violations of human relations and uh, social relations among peoples. Um, it, it's Israel has not just become a pariah state, but Israel is um, is really engaging in wholesale mass slaughter. And this needs to be, they need to be held accountable for this. And so far, even the International Criminal Court, even though it's deliberating whether to, uh, whether to accuse Israel or whether to have a trial uh, regarding war crimes against Israel, at least it is uh, investigating it, but they haven't even, uh, they haven't even decided they're going to uh, conduct a trial or hold Israelis accountable. I'm not saying they won't, but but it's been uh, three years, I think, at least since they announced that they were going to start investigating this. Um, and and BDS is an attempt to hold Israel accountable. The ICC is a potential uh, um, venue for, for this as well. Um, but genocide, uh, we need to change consciousness of what's going on. And genocide, the word, use of this word, needs to be normalized so that we can really call what Israel is doing, call it for what it is. And I think we also need to recognize the rhetoric that is being used, especially by these Israeli far-right politicians like Itamar Ben-Giver and Smotrich, and even, I mean, Netanyahu with his recent comments about, you know, we must crush, you know, he used that word crush, the hopes for a Palestinian state, you know, essentially saying there ain't going to be no two-state solution. That's what he is saying. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to shift gears uh, slightly here. Uh, I've often told you in the past that, uh, you know, I don't know how you do it sometimes, Richard, because you are really peering into the heart of darkness with a lot of the stories you cover. And one of the stories that you've covered uh, recently uh, that goes back to at least May 2020 was this uh, autistic Palestinian. Uh, I don't want to mispronounce his name, so I'll let you uh, tell the story. But uh, he was just brutalized and murdered in East Jerusalem. Could you talk about the story, uh, maybe give background on it, and then the latest developments in it? So a 30-year-old Palestinian who was autistic, um, his name is Ayad al-Halak. Um, he, every day, he would go to a community center and he would do activities um, that they would do for disabled Palestinians. He had a caregiver who accompanied him uh, from his home to the community center, was fairly close by. Um, so two soldiers at, uh, I think, the Damascus Gate questioned the two of them. And um, as an autistic, he is easily frightened uh, uh, in situations that he doesn't uh, anticipate. And uh, the soldiers wearing a uniform with their, um, with their weapons frightened him. And uh, he started to walk away. And the caregiver had told the soldiers when they were talking that he was disabled, that he was autistic. And uh, of course, the soldiers could see he was unarmed. Um, they gave chase. Eventually, the boy, uh, I call him a boy because his developmental cognitive abilities were that of a child rather than a three-year-old adult. Um, he, he ran away. And they cornered him in, 
it was like either a warehouse or just a like a concrete structure, a big room. And one of the soldiers uh, shot him and wounded him. He's lying on the ground. He's saying to them, I'm with her, pointing to his caregiver who's in the room screaming at the soldiers not to shoot. And the soldier who wounded him went up to him and point blank uh, killed him or murdered him. Um, the immediate response by the Israeli uh, police was that all of the CCTV cameras uh, on the route that they all took were um, inactive, inoperable, which is, of course, a lie because East Jerusalem is one of the most surveilled uh, cities or neighborhoods in the world, probably. CCTV is everywhere. Um, so that was an attempt to protect the murderer. Um, he was charged with a crime, and uh, the uh, legal process took two years, three years, actually. And uh, about a, two weeks ago, he was acquitted by an Israeli court. And I think this motivated an Israeli who um, I know, who's active in the human rights arena in Israel, to find the name of the murderer because he was not held accountable. And he told me the name of the murderer. And eventually I found uh, several pictures of him. They've tried to pixelate his image all throughout the internet. So his Facebook account uh, pixelates him, blurs his image. And everywhere you look where you find his name, the images are pixelated. But um, he didn't pixelate several images that I found on Instagram. So my blog features not only his name, which is Elior Yaakov, but uh, also uh, pictures, images of him. And the reason that Israel cannot, Israeli media cannot report his name and his image is because it's under a police gag order. So when the police tell, uh, go to a judge, the judge invariably will give them what they want and he'll declare a gag order and no Israeli media can report it. And most Israelis, even if they know the name, are afraid to report it, even on social media. And I've had Israelis, when I posted this link to my blog post about this, say, I'm afraid to even link to your blog post because, of course, the Israeli, uh, the Shin Bet and the Israeli police are monitoring social media, especially for Pal Israeli Palestinians and Palestinians in the West Bank to try to find what they consider incendiary posts that um, violate Israeli uh, definition of what uh, terrorism, incitement to terrorism. Um, so they can't, they're afraid, these Israeli Jews are even afraid to link to my blog post, lest they be called in by the Shin Bet. And one Israeli in particular said he'd been arrested and imprisoned for three days, I think for his involvement in the anti-government protests, and he wanted to really protect himself and felt he couldn't uh, promote this on social media. So um, it's important that people remember the name Elior, Elior Yaakov, uh, he's being feted, he, uh, feted at a, say, as a hero by the Israeli right. He's been right, interviewed. He just, the his, charges were just dropped, right? He was acquitted. Uh, no charges against him. He's back uh, as, a, as a border policeman. And, uh, you know, his career will go on. He'll probably get a promotion for uh, taking care of the homeland. And the other thing to remember is that these people, even though he murdered an, a helpless autistic child, he can, he calls the uh, the boy a terrorist, and for them they don't even care whether the boy was a terrorist or not because it falls within the overall rubric of defending the homeland. 
So yes, there's going to be collateral damage. Um, you know, uh, oh, the, the killer said if he had only known he was autistic, he would have helped him. That's a, that's a quote from what the murderer said. And the, the, it's an outrageous lie because the caregiver told him that he was autistic before he murdered him. So you can see the level of duplicity of lies. It's a tissue of lies. And it's not just this one uh, murderer, this one police officer who, who engages in this sort of, these sort of lies and self-deception. It's really the whole country, with the exception of, you know, people on the left um, who really see reality for what it is. And I'm in contact and uh, on social media with many of them, and we collaborate on various things. So there are some Israelis who uh, see what's going on for what it is, but the vast majority are, are fooling themselves and deluding themselves. And it has terrible uh, repercussions for the Palestinians. I was going to say it doesn't just end with uh you know, the death of this autistic man, you know, it, it goes even further and gets even more grotesque uh, because you have the Israeli minister of security, Edomir ben Giver, and his sort of, uh, you know, crew of far right uh, activists uh, saying, you know, get out of here. You're a terrorist to the mother of this slain uh, Palestinian autistic man. Right. So Itamar ben Gvir, um, and this goes to what I was just saying, as you mentioned, which is that uh, any Palestinian is a terrorist. You don't have to have a gun. You don't have to have committed a uh, quote-unquote terror attack against Israelis. Just by the fact, by virtue of you being Palestinian, you are automatically a terrorist, which also goes to the fact that the far right in Israel, and by far right, I don't mean on the edges. The far right controls Israel, make no mistake about it. The far right is the government and is the state. Um, they want to eliminate Palestinians, eliminate both Israeli Palestinians inside Israel and, of course, eliminate them, those in the West Bank. Um, so uh, the other thing to talk about Batsalas Motrich is uh, I was talking about genocide the other day, the other, sorry, the, the other moment. And um, so there was a terror attack outside of a Palestinian village of Huara and two Israeli settlers were, were murdered. And um, as a result, the uh, two or three uh, Israeli settlements that surround Huara, which are some of the most violent of, of all the settlements in Israel, descended en masse on Huara and burned the village to the ground. They burned vehicles. They burned homes with people in them. Palestinians uh, managed to survive somehow. One Palestinian was murdered by the settlers. Um, and the result was Smotrich saying, erase Huara, erase Huara, burn it to the ground. Again, this goes to what I was talking about, about genocide. This is explicit genocide. It is incitement to genocide. Whether or not Israelis did erase Huara, they didn't yet erase it, doesn't matter. This is incitement, the same time of kind of incitement that was heard in Rwanda, where the radio stations, state radio stations called upon uh, Rwandans, the tribe that was um, that was being attacked. No, the the, the, uh, the Rwandan genocide happened because on the radio stations they were inciting people to to rise up against their their neighbors and um, destroy the tribe that um, the op, the opposing tribe. So um, this is the same thing going on in in Israel, and God knows where it's going to lead. It will definitely lead to worse things than uh, Janine and what we've been seeing. 
Real quick on that note, and then I want to shift to Elizabeth Surkov uh, and that story. You know, I see a lot of people say, you know, I don't even want to talk about Israel-Palestine. Even people that are supportive of the Palestinians will say that to me. They'll say it's too dark. It's too depressing. There's no hope. And I, I'm not sure that I completely agree with the idea that there's no hope. I mean, I, I think Palestinians uh, have a very strong will to live. Uh, and, you know, they keep on living their lives. I mean, there's there's they're a population that keeps growing. Uh, so I don't think it's all just uh, hopelessness. I do think, uh, you know, the Israeli far right is not going to succeed in uh, their most grotesque of plans. Well, this is an important issue for me personally and uh, in general because it is often a hopeless situation or feels like a hopeless situation. And I think people, I understand when people say either it's too complicated or Israel has muddled up, muddied things so much that people don't know what to think about it. And they think, well, both sides are wrong. Um, they don't realize, of course, that the level of violence on the Israeli side is far, far uh, surpasses that on the Palestinian side. And as I said, far more Palestinians are murdered by Israelis than the other way around. So, um, it's very depressing. And human beings by nature don't want to dwell for any length of time on anything that's depressing um, and anything that seems very complicated. So it's a very de depressing subject. Um, human beings don't want to dwell on depression, depressive subjects and murder and violence. It's just, um, you know, it's against human nature, um, unless you <laughs> happen to be a murderer or someone who wants to engage in genocide and terrorism. But um, so I can understand uh, the, the reluctance, and I understand people wanting to shy away from the subject. However, if you do, then you're giving Israel a victory. And we mustn't do that. We mustn't let Israel get away with the crimes that it's committing. Um, it's one of the reasons why I write my blog, even though sometimes I myself get um, depressed about it. Um, and sometimes the subjects I'm writing on are just too difficult. Uh, I, I, I oftentimes find subject that I feel like I I really need to write about this, but I can't because it's just, it's too much. Um, but, but large hope, but um, thankfully that isn't the, um, my, my response uh, most of the time. And I think that uh, I mentioned this term, the still small voice. I think that my blog is not a huge voice. It's not New York times and it's not, uh, you know, any major global media outlet. Um, and it has a somewhat small audience compared to other blogs. But um, I like to think that I'm doing something that almost no one else is doing and in a way that no one else is doing. And um, I think it's just important to be a witness, a moral witness um, that, that calls Israel to account. Um, and uh, let's go back to what your question was, uh, JB, because I think I lost track. Of well, I, I was saying, you know, I, I mean... You know, there's still a Palestinian population. It's growing. You know, it's not like uh, Palestinians have just stopped having kids or anything like that. In fact, I, I've read that their population is growing rapidly. Uh, so I, I I guess what I'm saying is I think the Palestinians still stand a fighting chance, um, even with what they're up against. I don't think they've given up. And I think it's kind of insulting to act as if it's all, you know, going to end you know, tomorrow, uh, you know, I don't have an apocalyptic view on this. I mean, it is really bad, but I think the Palestinians still have a lot in them, you know? 
Um, there's an important term that people should know in Arabic. It's sumud. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the emphasis on the syllables right, but sumud is steadfastness. And uh, Palestinians have been steadfast for 100 years, for a century, and they're not going to give up. They're not going to give up their towns. They're not they, even if Israel creates refugees in Janin or wherever. They're, they're going to come back. They're going to rebuild. They're not going to give up. And the Israeli strategy is seems to be based on the fact that if we inflict enough suffering on them, if we kill enough of them, if we destroy enough villages, uh, if we steal enough resources, land and territory, we're going to close in on them like a vise, and there will be, you know, they'll be squeezed so that they have to escape. They have to go, you know, outside of Israel. They have to be expelled, or they have to leave voluntarily. It's not going to happen. Israel basically engages in what's called mowing the mowing the grass. Um, they never they never pull up the grass entirely. The, the Palestinians are the grass in this um, in this analogy uh, because they can't um, unless they wanted to drop an atomic bomb, a nuclear bomb on, on the Palestinians. They're not going to get rid of them, and they're going to continue to be as vociferous, they're going to continue the resistance. They're going to continue the attacks against Israelis, as long as the Israelis refuse to recognize the reality, which is they either have two choices. They have to accept a Palestinian state, which they have refused. And, and you mentioned that Antonio said we have to crush this aspiration, or there's going to be a single state uh, that includes all Israeli Jews and Palestinians in a single state. Now, yes, the likelihood of either one of those options happening seems remote. The international community and the U.S. is refusing to uh, exert the kind of pressure that would be necessary to force the Israelis to accept one of those terms. That does not mean it won't happen. And it probably means it won't happen maybe in my lifetime. Uh, I'm 70, going on 71. It may not happen in the next 10 or 20 years, but it will happen eventually. And if the ICC, if the world community um, comes to understand how dire this situation is, then it will take action as it did in Kosovo. It forced the Serbs uh, in uh, the former Yugoslavia to accept a, Serbia, a, a Kosovo state against their will. Uh, that's the kind of outcome that will have to happen if there is ever going to be any kind of long-term peace uh, between Israel and Palestinians. Now, the last thing I wanted to cover, and you'll have to fill me in on this because I've only heard about it in passing. I haven't done nearly enough research on it. Uh, but uh, Elizabeth Surkov, uh, this is the woman who was kidnapped in March by a uh, Shia militia in Baghdad. I guess she's a former Israeli human rights worker. You said this story was of particular interest to you. Maybe you could fill me and my listeners in on this story. Sure. Elizabeth Surkov is um, a woman who was served in Israeli intelligence, not at the highest level of intelligence, but a lower level, but she was in an intelligence unit. Uh, and I was the first person to report the specific unit that she served in. Um, and she, uh, after her military service, her politics changed, and she became a an Israeli human rights worker and worked for an organization called Moked. Um, and she uh, befriended Palestinians, and she had strong uh, sort of criticism of Israeli uh, occupation. And then she went to the United States. She got a degree at the University of Chicago, uh, I think a master's, 
And then she uh, enrolled in a PhD program in, at Princeton University. So uh, when all this happened, she was a, a graduate student at Princeton. She uh, has, she's very interested in Islamist militia in Syria, in Iraq. And she's very interested in particular in a Hezbollah-linked Iraqi militia called Qataib Hezbollah. Um, they're, they're very influenced by the Hezbollah uh, Islamist group in Lebanon. Um, they've served in Syria, where Hezbollah has also served uh, to prop up the Assad regime. Uh, but they're based in Iraq. And they're Shia, which means that they have a close allegiance alliance with Iran itself, which is Shia. And I should say that 80% of Iraqis are Shia. So um, for some strange reason that I can't figure out, um, she decided to go to Iraq. And she's been in Syria as well. Um, and trying to interview and, and and meet these people in Syria. So um, and and these are hostile states. Israel has a hostile relations with both of these states. They never signed a peace agreement. It's illegal for Israelis to enter these uh, countries, even though Israel really almost never uh, uh, prosecutes Israelis for doing it. Um, so she went there in January, and in March. Uh, Israeli reporter who writes for the New York Times named Ronan Bergman went to Netanyahu and said, I have the story. We're going to print it in the New York Times. So Israel and Netanyahu decided to get ahead of the story, and he released the information that she had been kidnapped in March. And um, unfortunately for Israel, because of the hostility that Netanyahu and previous prime ministers have uh, engendered towards Iran, uh, there's no Israeli leverage here in this situation. Israel, uh, even if it had announced that she was uh, kidnapped, it probably would have harmed her even more. Uh, the question is whether she's in Iran now, whether she was transported to Iran, or whether she's still in Iraq. Uh, I'm sort of guessing the fact that she hasn't uh, been freed means that she was transported to Iraq, but we don't know. So um, I got news that... Um, that um, the news that I got that was different, that was further amplified the story beyond what Bergman reported in the New York Times was the intelligence angle. And um, others like uh, Ali Abu Nima at Electronic Intifada have covered other aspects of the story. Um, it's important to know the circumstances in which she tried to enter, which she entered Iraq. She's uh, Israeli Russian, so she has a Russian passport. She entered Iraq on a Russian passport. She told the people she interviewed in Iraq that she was Russian. She didn't tell them that she was Israeli. But in the middle of one of the interviews that she gave, the last one that she gave, that, that she uh, took with uh, a member of Kotaib Hezbollah, they came to understand that she was an Israeli. And then she was kidnapped as a result of that. So she tried to hide her identity. And I've seen interviews that she gave before she was kidnapped. And the political stance that she was espousing was 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 tailored to what an Iraqi would want to hear. She denounced the United States. There were other things she said that it's clear that she didn't believe. Um, so she is sort of a chameleon. Um, and, and of course, this is what you would classically find a good spy to be. And, and many people think that she's a Mossad spy. 
but my source in Israel says she's not a Mossad spy. But that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, many academics and journalists who go to countries where Israeli intelligence wants to know uh, things about the country will cooperate and serve as um, assets or sources for Israeli intelligence. I'm not even saying that she did that, but this is a phenomenon that has happened in the past. So the level of duplicity on her part. Um, also, if Iraqis did speak to her, it really endangered them because Iraq itself also uh, rejects or prohibits any contact with Israelis. So what people like Israelis have done this before, by the way, some uh, one Israeli went to Lebanon and uh, tried to inv- interview Hezbollah, but and the, the, Leban- the Lebanese interviewee that she interviewed lost his job, and much worse could have happened to him. So Israelis who try to do things like that um, are not only endangering themselves, which clearly she did, but they're endangering the Iraqis, and they're deceiving them. Um, and I find that to be unethical, not just you know, academically unethical. Um, it just, and if universities don't have standards that prohibit this sort of duplicity, then they're really doing a disservice to academic research and they're doing uh, uh, damage to the whole notion of academic um, objectivity and academic, I mean, it's, it's one thing for an academic to have a point of view, uh, that's totally acceptable, but when you use deceit, in order to pursue your research, I think that's unacceptable. And uh, I find, you know, it's hard to criticize someone who is suffering. And and I I'm not saying that I, you know, don't feel uh, empathy for her condition and that um, I hope that she's freed and released. However, I think it's really important, and I've been attacked by Israelis from this point of view. I think as a journalist, it's really important for you to report reality and not to conceal reality. One is really said I shouldn't have reported it at all because it would have harmed her. <laughs> if they think that um, a blog post that I wrote is going to do more harm to her than the harm that's already done, they're deceiving themselves. But um, I think it's a really important issue to, to mention that it's our duty as, as journalists to report situations like this. Her kidnapping was not known for three months. Nobody knew about it. Well, maybe people in Iraq knew about it, but nobody outside Iraq uh, knew about the kidnapping. So um, I think that does a disservice and the public's right to know. Uh, It damages it in Israel and elsewhere. Was part of the reason that maybe some people criticized you? I know, uh, you know, even some respected Palestinian activists have have sort of vouched for her and spoken highly of her, like... um, Issa Amro. And uh, I know, uh, I think uh, some people at Betselem got into you um, about this issue. So, yeah, the Israelis, uh, the guy from Betselem, he, he, you know, people have used uh, terms like loathsome and disgusting um, to term my reporting on this issue. And I'm not, by the way, the only one reporting. Ali Abu Nima reported, uh, in the New York Times reported on this. Um, so, um, but they like to uh, sort of attack me, maybe because my politics are left wing. Um, but it really feels weird to have Israeli progressives, at least they consider themselves progressive, and B'Tselem is the most prominent uh, Israeli human rights group, to have... They've, the done, director... they've done very good work, to be fair, too. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm not, I don't want to attack them, yeah. 
one of the three human rights groups I was talking about that called Israel apartheid state uh, is B'Tselem. And he's the director, this guy's a director of public outreach. And when I brought to the attention the, uh, the, the hysterical attack, um, I got no response from B'Tselem. Um, so I just really find that troubling, uh, if, especially for a, in a group like B'Tselem, which is primarily involved in Palestinian human rights. But the problem with Israelis who support Palestinian rights, but who don't transfer those progressive views into other arenas that re are relevant to Israel, it's, it's I don't know if hypocritical may be too strong a term to use, but it's really a misunderstanding of reality because even Israelis who are progressive hate Iran because they've demonized Iran so much that um, they cannot see any kind of reality. They cannot see that Israeli policy towards Iran, which we'll talk about another time, is flawed and failed. So they think that anybody who expresses any kind of understanding uh, or analysis of what's going on in Iran that is at all sympathetic, even in remote ways, um, they view these people as maybe traitors or hostile to Israel. And it's really, it's another one of the things that I fight against all the time. There are many uh, Israeli attitudes I'm fighting against, but um, this is also one of them. She may have supported Palestinian rights, but she did things that were deceitful in Syria and Iraq. And she needs to be held to, to account, even though she's suffering and she's a kidnapped victim. And I understand all of the importance of acknowledging that and 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 um, and co condemning uh, the kidnapping. But you you have an obligation as a human being to protect yourself. And if you take a risk like that, you're it's a calculated risk, and there's going to be an outcome uh, that is going to be uh, harmful. Um, in, in many cases. And you can't sort of hide your head in the sand and say, well, it should have happened. And now we need to denounce um, everybody involved. And we, we need to justify everything that she's done and not attack her. And I, I just journalistically, I find that uh, untenable. Last thing in regards to this case, um, I know you mentioned the question of, I guess there's uh, intelligence ties, military intelligence ties that she had and you mentioned the, the question of was was she doing spy work? Um, how are we how are we to assess that? Because I know you've said that uh, you have contacts in Israel that say that's not the case. How are we to think about that issue? I think that uh, people in the left, people who are pro Palestinian, people who are hostile to Israel in general, they really do a disservice when they jump to conclusions like this. Um, it's very easy because of the I don't know, paranoia is the right word, or because of just Israel's past behavior. It's very easy to fall into a trap of saying she was a spy without having any evidence to support it, by the way, um, because it's a knee-jerk reaction response. Maybe in some ways it's understandable because Israel itself engages in duplicity and lying so often um, to believe this, to believe the worst. Um, but I think as a journalist, you know, I have to really say what I know or, or see to be the truth, um, even if it goes against people's view or their knee-jerk reaction. And by the way, I haven't gotten a lot of criticism from the people on the left for saying these things. They haven't attacked me like the Israeli human rights and uh, some Israelis on the left have attacked me. Um, and and I, my, my source is very credible. 
and said to me, she's not working for Mossad. So it's my obligation really to tell it, uh, tell the world um, that the source says she's not working for Mossad, in spite of the fact that it goes against, uh, you know, the prevailing, perhaps the prevailing pro-Palestinian view on uh, Twitter. There are people who've not only said she works for Mossad, they've um, said that, you know, their kidnapping is justifiable and they've expressed hostility to her and her, her welfare. And I think that's really counterproductive because it allows the opponents, it allows the people on the right to laugh and ridicule the knee-jerk response of the left. And that's why it's important for those of us who are progressive to really be careful about what we say, not to exaggerate and not to uh, make claims that are not based on at least circumstantial evidence, if not direct, clear, and credible evidence like the evidence I use. In closing, what's the, what do you want people to get out of this? Uh, I, I would say you've, you've even called it a tragedy uh, with Elizabeth Surkov. And, and like, you know, I, I guess it's, it feels like Israel doesn't really have much leverage uh, when it comes to this kidnapping. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that in closing. I have heard, uh, I read yesterday, someone say that it's possible that Iran wants to negotiate a prisoner exchange. There may be an Iranian or Iranian um, asset held by Israel. And so there could be a prisoner exchange, but uh, that's going to be very difficult because Israel not only has no relations with Iran and Iraq, by the way, um, but the uh, the well has been poisoned uh, very severely by Israel by Netanyahu himself, whose uh, rhetoric against uh, Iran has been really genocidal, talking about using nuclear weapons against Iran, even in an implicit way, not explicit necessarily, but pretty implicit. Um, so uh, if anything, it would be a, a, re a reverse, uh, the opposite of an advantage for Israel to you know, reveal too much or say too much um, about uh, Sorkov, which is why they held off, as I mentioned. Um, but um, the Israel has has approached the United States, where she was a graduate student, and I'm pretty sure the State Department is trying to do what it can. However, the United States is negotiating its own prisoner exchange with U.S. citizens that are held in Iran. So there's no way that we're going to exert any more um, leverage or pressure on Iran to deal with Elizabeth Sorkov, given uh, our own interests here. So I'm afraid that uh, it's going to be a long, lonely um, imprisonment or whatever conditions she's facing now. Um, I would warn the Iranians and uh, the Iraqis that mistreatment of her um, is a violation of international law. And uh, my, con my hope is that her conditions are at least uh, you know, livable um, throughout her uh, detention or imprisonment, however long it takes. I hope that she will be freed. Um, but I really would urge anyone considering doing what she's done um, to think twice and three times about it. And I've even heard that Princeton. Well, she's not the only one you've written about either, right? You've also written about um, uh, Siamak Namazi, right? Yes, he's the American citizen. His father and he uh, were imprisoned as spies again, in scare quotes, uh, by the Iranians and um, the, the arrest by the Iranian intelligence of the two Namazis happened because a quote-unquote 
U.S. journalist named Michael Weiss, um, uh, commissioned a pseudonymous attack on the Namazis that was published in the Daily Beast. And uh, it accused them of all sorts of lies. Uh, and it was written by an Iranian dissident here in the U.S. or in Canada. And um, that's what the Iranians used to justify arresting them. And um, the Bakir Namazi was 80 years old. He was released um, uh, in poor health, but he was released and is back in the U.S. But uh, Shiamak Namazi hasn't been released, even though there have been two or three prisoner exchanges since his detention. But now the U.S. is focused on releasing him. Um, there is serious negotiations. In fact, about uh, a month ago, it appeared that there was an agreement and that they would released, be released imminently. That hasn't happened, unfortunately. But I'm looking forward to Shemak being being released in the near term. Well, I want to thank you again, Richard Silverstein, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work and what do you hope they get out of this conversation? Uh, my my website is uh, richardsilverstein.com. The name of it is Tikkun Olam. And um, I hope that uh, people watching will keep themselves educated, both by reading my blog and reading other publications. I publish in Middle East Eye and the New Arab, not probably media publications on the tip of everyone's tongue, but they're all doing very important reporting, not just on Israel-Palestine, but on the Middle East in general. And I think even though this is tends to be sometimes a depressing subject, writing about murder and violence, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I really think it's important that, to hold Israel's feet to the fire. And I hope that people will devote as much attention to, as they can to this issue, because that will help change attitudes and change policy in the United States and other countries towards Israel and Palestine. Thank you again, Richard Silverstein, for coming on Parallax Views. Always great to be here, JB. Thanks. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Richard Silverstein enlightening. I know that some of the subject matter can be very dark at times, but I hope that you found something useful within the conversation nonetheless. As always, if you appreciate the work here, I do at Parallax Views. Please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm... I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. 
new forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.